Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you are blessed by what you're about to hear. Well, here we are at the end of the book of Nahum, and um, it's been a short trip through the book, but uh, an eventful one. And this last passage, chapter 3, um, I did warn you midweek that um, the passage itself is unrelenting. God is, uh, there's not, it doesn't appear to have much hope in this passage for, for Nineveh or for anybody. It's very dark, it's very grim. And so, um, as I've said before, sometimes the Bible will be more difficult for you to hear than to hear me. Because um, I will expound as best I can on it, but God has no desire nor any need to uh, to um, justify His words. He is God, and so we hear His final words. This basically it's a woe to to Nineveh. So let's read those 19 verses, last chapter of Nahum, and then we'll see what we can glean from it. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make make you a spectacle. And all who, who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit, Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into, in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are, are women in your midst. The gates of your, of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like grasshopper. Like the grasshopper. Your, you increased your number, your merchants, more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, 
For upon whom has not your, evil, your unceasing evil, has not come, sorry, your unceasing evil. Okay. See, you see, beginning to see why people don't preach this book? It is harsh. And yet, there's, there's something here. This grim ending for Assyria is very clear. Put simply, what is going on here is God is saying, Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria has been so brutal, has been so terrible in the world, that their judgment is certain, that they deserve everything they're getting. It's final and it's coming. And it's, it's one thing to say that. And as readers now, modern readers, you see, it's easy for us to detach ourselves. It's 2,600 years later. And you say, well, you know, the message is for the people of Judah, and they were just being encouraged that their enemy was going to be destroyed. Well, if that was all that we were meant to get from it, is to keep it as a historical document for yesteryear, then we have to wonder why God is so specific. If Nineveh was never going to hear this, and it was just for us, are we only to see this as 21st century Christians, or as Canadians, are we only to see it as the rantings of this ancient bloodthirsty God who is going to avenge the, 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 uh, the evil done to his people? Is that all we're supposed to see? Or is there more? Are we not meant to, to bear the weight of this judgment as partially our own? Because Assyria here, yes, they are guilty. Yes, Judah is getting a message of, of happiness here that their enemy will finally, their overlords will be thrown off. But Assyria is being identified with having serious, serious problems, a fatal wound that cannot be healed. And it's not just them. As they do that, we are meant to see that we bear the exact same wounds that Assyria did, and we have a fatal disease. And you'll see this in a moment. All humanity suffers, and we all are subject to the Assyrian problem. And only the gospel of all the world's religions, of all the world views, of anything, offers any sort of an, an answer to these very serious questions, because the questions that we have that are raised here are the problems that we have with evil, with shame, and with guilt. And these are massive questions. Christians often want to avoid this stuff, right? They want to avoid the fact that God takes responsibility for terrible evil at times. Bear with me as we go through this. But we want to avoid it, right? We want to have, we want to have a God that is far more sanitized. So when a skeptic comes and says, the God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty, how could he be that way? He can't be good if he's like that. Christians instinctively want to absolve God of any part in evil. And when they do that, I understand the purpose, but they contradict Scripture itself, which seems to have this massive tension in it. And we're going to see that tension that says evil is man-made, and yet God has a part in it. He takes responsibility to an extent. What do we make of that tension? What do we make of the fact that we are all standing like Assyria, exposed, and everyone, every human is judged and deemed to be deserving of death and hell? That's the claim of Christianity. As harsh as it is, we can't just hide it. That's literally the point. If you don't tell people that this is the problem the biblical God has with humanity, is that they have gone awry, then what, why would they ever accept the gospel? And so we cannot shrink from it. We simply say, okay, well, what do we make of all this? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to see this passage shows us that we have a fatal wound, but there is a hope for healing, but only one hope for healing. And so let's walk through those three things. Let's deal with the problem of evil, Shame and the problem of guilt. The problem of evil. So this is such a common question that I get at churches, uh, on campuses, anywhere I speak. The question is always, what about suffering? What about evil? And this is not a new question. It's amazing that we haven't put this, this question to bed yet. Because uh, academically, just so you know, it has been put to bed. 
It has been. You don't see two scholars on stage debating anymore about the problem of evil. The reason is, it's been settled philosophically. A guy named Alvin Plantinga made very clear that it's possible that if there is a good God, there should be and can be evil in the world. So intellectually, it's not an issue. But the problem isn't intellectual, is it? The problem is emotional, is practical, it's theological. What does it mean if you have a God who is good and evil? Where does evil come from? Why does he permit it? It's the old David Hume question. If God is all-powerful and can prevent evil, but he doesn't, then he's cruel. And if he can't prevent evil, then he's, he's impotent. In which case, both cases, we don't want that God. Age-old question. It's literally as old as humanity. And usually what happens is we want to heap all the... Christians do this a lot. We want to heap all the blame on humans. And so this is an ancient problem. Back Homer's Odyssey, the Odyssey by Homer, the great Greek, says, um, has, has Zeus saying this, Look you now, how vainly mortal men do blame the gods. For of us, they say, comes evil, whereas they, even of themselves, through the blindness of their own hearts, have sorrows beyond that which is ordained. So for all time, we have said, no, no, it's not God's problem. It's, no, it's nothing out there. The existentialists said this in the 20th century. It's not any, it's you. You're the problem. And here the Bible agrees. The Bible says, yes, evil is a problem of humanity. We brought evil into, the God's, into God's good creation, 100%. We brought it in, we're culpable, we're accountable for it, no doubt. But then we have these awkward verses that you, can, you cannot ignore if you're a Christian. If you do, you, you're making a God of your own. You have to acknowledge them. And when you do acknowledge these verses, of God's own claims about what he does to the world. We can't absolve him. When you do that, when you actually embrace them, you have a God who's far stronger, a faith much stronger, not weaker like you might think. So in this passage, for instance, just in this, this one, actually, let me say this as well. If you have a theology, even as a Christian, that says man is 100% accountable and God has no part in any sort of calamity and evil, no control, nothing, then you, not only are you contradicting scripture, but you've actually created a very unsatisfactory answer. You see, any worldview, Christian, Buddhist, atheist, secular humanist, whatever it is, any worldview that says the problem is all humanity leaves us unsatisfied. It's an unsatisfying answer intellectually, emotionally, and theologically. It just doesn't satisfy. It's not enough for us. And you're going to see why in a minute. But here in this passage, God takes direct ownership says in verse 5, and he uses the, the Hebrew word I himself six times here. It's not always in the English, but he uses it over and over. He wants to make sure you know he is the one bringing this calamity upon these people. And innocent people die, not just the guilty. As far as, again, listen, I'm a good Calvinist. We're all guilty. But there's children that die when God brings war. And listen to what he says. I'm against you. I will lift up your skirts. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your, your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. God does not say, oh no, this is just the natural order of things. I wound up a world, the watchmaker God, right? I created a world and now I let it go and all this is your problem. That's partly true. It is our problem. But God doesn't ever say, I have no part in it. To our discomfort, he says, I'm the one did it. I did it to Thebes, and I'm doing it to Nineveh. And there's a guy named James Bruckner. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he's a good Christian, so don't, get, don't be mis, misled by this, pas this verse or his uh, passage. But he's trying to wrestle with the reality of what you see here. And here's what he says about this passage. 
The sharp edges of this text remain sharp. The problem with each of these solutions, meaning solutions to evil, for people who read scripture as God's word is that God directly takes responsibility for the destruction of Thebes and Nineveh. To dismiss the slaughter of infants as the work of evil men, linguistically or philosophically, does not actually put it out of mind, nor does it settle the contemporary issue of innocent suffering today. God is still the master of an awful mess. Answers to this mess are in short supply. Christian or not, you have a problem of evil. Not one that's unresolvable. There is a resolution. But it is still an issue. We have a good God who is not the creator of evil, but will use the evil of humanity for his purposes and permits it. What do we do with that? Now, we're going to leave that tension there for a second because we'll resolve these at the end. But let me now just turn with this problem of evil to the question that skeptics have. Because if I'm not a Christian, and I wasn't, and I see this all the time, there's the common bristling at the Old Testament God. And it's normal. Christians want to pretend like God is not responsible at all, and atheists want to make it sound, and secular humanists want to say, gosh, this God is just terrible. How could you believe in this silliness? And one example, and there's many, would be a few years ago, there was a, a terrible bus crash in the United Kingdom, and it killed a bunch of children. It was a Catholic school, and it killed a bunch of children. And famed atheist Richard Dawkins goes and he writes an article for the newspaper about it. And in it, and he, he does what he normally does, which he tries to take attacks and shots at Christianity. But at one point he says that, how could you believe in this God? Because there's the presence of such, and he quotes, meaningless tragedy in the world. Now, can I say, if you're an atheist, if you're somebody who disagrees with that there's a God, especially the Christian God, then you have a far bigger problem than the problem of evil. You have an intellectual problem and an emotional one and a practical one. When he says that, there is a, that this death of these children is meaningless, a meaningless tragedy, that's an oxymoron. If there is no meaning in the world, there's no such thing as tragedy. Because tragedy assumes the world should be a certain way, and it isn't that way. But an atheist says there is no meaning in the world. There's no should. The world is just red and tooth and claw. That's what nature is. And that the dying of a child is actually of no more significance. This is what the atheist must say. Now, they don't say it sometimes because they're not being honest with what they believe. But if there's no meaning in the world, then a child dying, no matter how tragic you call it, is no more tragic than when I scratch and, I, and a bunch of skin cells die. It's just what happens to living things. So Mr. Dawkins, you're wrong and you're a hypocrite. In, intellectually, as a human being, I'm sure he's a wonderful man. I'm not knocking a human being. I'm knocking his ideas because they're terrible and they're, in, they're inconsistent. There's no such thing as a meaningless tragedy if you're an atheist. So the bigger problem you have if you don't believe in God is not why is there evil. The question is why do you find it objectionable? Why do you think evil's bad? Because it's not. You see, if you're an atheist, you believe in natural selection and evolution, in which case it means the weak must and should die. The weak should die because the last thing you want is a child growing up with leukemia and ruining the gene pool and making us weaker as a species. And so atheism, if you embrace it, if you actually believe what you say rather than just playing with philosophy and religion, what you're saying is there is no tragedy. And it's actually an incredibly cruel response to the suffering in the world. It says suffering is meaningless. If you're, if you're sick, you deserve to die because the last thing I want is your uh, leukemia or your anything else, cerebral, cerebral palsy, anything you have, I don't want it affecting the gene pool. That's the brutality of atheism. 
A life without God says there's no such thing as a tragedy. So that's the first thing I would say. But now let me move to something I'm just going to say briefly, because I think it has to be said today, maybe not 60 years ago, but today it does need to be said. There's been a switch where Christianity is largely attacked in the Western world, but Eastern religions are embraced. Yoga is cool, karma is good, all these things. I get it. I've seen it coming. Phil, you see it coming. But can I just expose for a minute what those things actually mean? If you know, we all say things like karma. In fact, Sarah and I once were at a place and we paid for somebody's groceries because the, the guy couldn't, didn't have money in his account. So we paid for them. No problem. And the, the young lady at the, at the cash said, oh, you're going to get some good love for that. Karma. You know, good job, guys. You're going to get, it's going to come back to you in some way. And I'm like, oh, thank you very much for your paganism. It's good. Um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. It, but that's what you hear. There's this idea of karma, that if you do good, you'll get good, etc. Now, I understand this. I really do. But do you know what karma and dharma is? You know, dharma, I'm going to give you a, a small lesson here. Dharma is the Hindu idea of how the world is, the way of reality. And it says very clearly, very, put simply, the world is exa exactly as it should be. And you should not tamper with it. So when you walk around and you see a beggar on the street, do not give him money. Because he is a beggar because he deserves to be. And once upon a time in a previous life, he did something. And this led to the struggles he's having now. And the gods want it that way. So if you intercede in that life, you're actually in violation of the order of the universe. So it's literally scripted in their doctrine that mercy is evil. So when we talk about, I'm going to go to do yoga, I'm, listen, I'm not going to knock people for stretching. I'm not. But understand that when we use this language, when we embrace other things, do you know what you're embracing? Do you know what you're supposed to believe? Or do you just simply say, this is like a buffet, and I'm going to take the parts I like about karma and make it my own thing. I'm going to take what I like about Jesus and make it my own thing. The problem of evil is only a problem for Christians. We're the ones that have to wrestle with a good God that, in, that permits evil and uses evil for his glory. The rest of the world will say, I mean, the Eastern religions say it doesn't exist. It's all an illusion. Your suffering is in your mind. And once you, you attain enlightenment, then you'll realize you're not really suffering. Atheists will say, yeah, you're suffering, but in fact, they can't even say suffering because suffering assumes that it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, you might be experiencing pain, but that's the nature of the universe. Tough bananas. Suck it up. No meaning in it. You get hit by a car, no meaning in it. Your child dies, no meaning in it. Only Christianity has an answer. But let me allow that tension to stay there between how a good God permits it till the end. Okay? So, evil. Next thing we have to move to is the question of shame. We have this problem of shame. So, Assyria was um, a brutal country, and I know I have kids here. I only realized this week that the kids were going to be here. I'm like, oh, no, this is a bad passage with children around. Um, so, I'll do my best. Assyria, like most nations, didn't just want to defeat their enemy, but they wanted to use psychological warfare. And we see this all the time. It's happened for the history of humanity. We used uh, elephants. The Indian uh, people in India would armor up their elephants because the intimidation, psychologically, it's pretty weird to see elephants charging at you. Uh, and it was very psychologically impactful. But it's not just that. How about Vlad the Impaler, where Bram Stoker gets his Dracula from? Obviously a brutal man. But at one point, the Ottoman Turks came to invade Europe, and they had to pass through Vlad's land. And as they came, as Mehmed II comes to the field where he's about supposed to meet Vlad the Impaler in a battle, he sees at Turgoviste, it's um, uh, thousands of men impaled on spikes in a field. 
He sees it, and he turns around and goes back. Because the psychological impact of that brutality was too much. And that's what he did. And it's not just the ancients. We continue to use psychological warfare. How about, well, World War I, the Americans and British were dropping leaflets into the German trenches. And they were saying things like, hey, just rebel. Don't you know, you German soldiers, that you're just, you're just fodder in the military machine of the Kaiser and of Siemens, the, uh, the company that was, now makes wonderful electronics, and Krupps and all these groups. That's all. You're just, you're just fodder. Give it up. And they even say, the Americans even went so far as to say, if you give up and surrender, we'll restore Germany. You'll be another, you'll be a number one nation again. Which, of course, isn't what happened, was it? We brutalized them after the First World War. But we do that. We psychologically want to impact our enemy. But Assyria went further. They didn't simply want to uh, instill fear on the battlefield. They were intentionally and deliberately very, very cruel. It went beyond just trying to win a war. They wanted to destroy the spirit of their enemy, of their opponents. And you see this in the text when, it, when God's attack against them refers to them as a bloody city. When it says that they're a city full of lies, the Hebrew literally says they are all lies, meaning the whole city is a lie. Everything is infected. And it talks about how they're going to have inflicted on them what they have inflicted, including heaps of bodies, hosts of dead, mounds, and un endless countless corpses. And it sounds brutal, and because it is. But this is what Assyria had done to the world. In fact, and I know this kid, so I won't go into detail, though. They're probably playing their games, I'm hoping. Assyria, when you, not, when you archaeologically dig up Nineveh, you find that they put carvings of their tortures and brutalities, not just in private places, but in the middle of the town square. They wanted to make sure that everybody who walked to the market or to anywhere they were going would see the brutality of their people. That's who we are. When, if you were happen to, um, well, in fact, it says it, they would intentionally kill the children, but not just kill the children, but they would intentionally do it at the center of town squares at the head of the streets because they wanted the parents to see what was happening. It wasn't just a matter of let's exterminate them and let's take their land. It was let's break them. Then the people who were taken in slavery were marched and they were forced oftentimes to hold the heads of their family that they killed on the whole march. And then when they got to Nineveh, they would be welcomed by heaps of dead and piles. And then oftentimes there would be um, pikes lining the streets with heads on them like, like kebabs all down the streets. Nineveh was not merely brutal, wanting to win wars. They desired to break people's spirit. Now, how does this get to the question of shame? This is how. In the passage, you notice it refers to Assyria as prostitutes. And that's a weird thing. If you, if you maybe didn't notice it, but the almost only, the only time anyone is referred to as a prostitute in the Old Testament is Israel. Israel is called, is used in those terms, because Israel has a covenant with God. And they, when they, when they um, worship other gods, are cheating on God. There's adultery. And that's when they are accused of prostitution, adultery. But how can Assyria, people who have no relationship with God, be called that? And the answer is found in, the, in understanding who Assyria was, rather than trying to look at it the same way. See, Assyria used, well, I could use this. James Bruckner, talking to the same the guy I quoted earlier from the Old Testament, uh, says this, prostitutes offer what they cannot deliver, beauty and love. They sell what should not be sold and cannot be bought, intimacy and a lifetime of love, care, and commitment. And so, well, how does that fit Assyria's bill? Well, this is how. Assyria is powerful and wealthy. And they would, this is a practice they did all the time. You see it in the Bible and you see it in extra-biblical sources of archaeology as well. 
they would go to countries and to nations and to cities, and they would entice them. They'd say, listen, we're Assyria. We have everything you could possibly want. Just surrender. Just surrender, and you'll be better off if you do. And then, of course, when people surrendered, they promised everything, like a prostitute. But then once the people surrendered, they butchered them. They were dishonest. It was shameful what they did. We see it in two, I'll, I'll go through two things. One is in the, to what they tried to do to Jerusalem. In Isaiah, it has the account of when Sennacherib invades Jerusalem, he sends his general named Rabshakeh there to the wall. And he's debating, he's arguing with the, the, the city officials. And listen to what he says. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take, away your, take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So they offer this. And then the moment anyone surrenders, they just kill them. And we have a practical, many of them, but here's one example of a little city called Sura. And we have this in the Assyrian records and Babylonian records. They go to the walls and they make the same promise. And the moment the officials agree and say, Fine, we'll surrender because they didn't want to fight. What ends up happening is um, they take, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I want to say write it all down. They take the people, they cut off the legs of every male they could find. They take the officials and they skin them alive in Nineveh. And just, I know there's kids here, so I won't go into more detail. And all the people are left, are, are enslaved. All when they were promised wine and vineyards. And this is the prostitution that they're speaking of that Assyria used everything they had to deceive and to allure and to betray. And this is something Assyria ought to have been ashamed of. They should have been ashamed to use their power in that way. They should have been ashamed, but they weren't at all. And this is the problem. They should have been repenting, and they don't. And this question of shame is very relevant today. Because one of the things you'll notice, and I'll talk in a minute about it more, uh, about guilt, because shame and guilt are different. Shame is something we're trying to get rid of. We're trying to erase the idea of shame from our world. And this is why. When shame, so the difference between shame and guilt is this. Guilt is doing something wrong. Shame is thinking that you are wrong. Like something in me is wrong. Not just my actions, but me. I am something wrong with me, not just my actions. And so that's shame. And shame has been used horribly by humanity. It's been misplaced. And, well, just by way of some examples, um, we have, for instance, if you're the victim of some sort of abuse, it's easy that the victim often feels ashamed of being abused. And that's misplaced shame. When we feel guilty that um, for our race, we've seen this historically with my marginalized cultures, and now we're trying to see it. We're seeing people try to do it with, with Caucasians. You should feel ashamed of who you are, as if that makes any sense. You see, misplaced shame is brutal. And it's not just that. We even bring it down to every level of our world. You should be ashamed as a, as a mother if your kids don't behave well at church. You should be ashamed if your house isn't clean. You should be ashamed if you don't have enough money. You should be ashamed of putting on weight, of not having enough weight. Whatever it is, we heap shame. And because we have been such terrible stewards of it, what ends up happening is the culture says, you know, we're going to get rid of shame altogether. We're going to create a world that says, not only should I never be ashamed because I shouldn't be held to anyone's standards but my own, but here's the, here's the irony. You should be ashamed of making me feel ashamed. How dare you make me feel ashamed for what I think and believe and am? See what we've done. The Bible, however, comes and says, no, no, there's reasons you should be ashamed. 
So yes, shame has been misplaced. Yes, we've used it wrongly, but the answer isn't to scrub it out entirely. Instead, the answer is to look and see what ought we be ashamed to be ashamed of and what shouldn't we be ashamed of. And Assyria then stands as a warning. It sits there and says, when you become the standard of your own shame, when you say, I decide what is shameful and isn't, then what ends up happening is when we remove shame as a reality in our world, or we think it is, all we end up doing is running, making ourselves butchers of each other, and we run afoul of God. And we're seeing this in the culture. Now, I have to let that tension stay, and now let's move to guilt, and then we'll resolve it. Now we move to guilt. So God comes and he confronts Assyria here, and he says, are you any better than Thebes? Thebes was an Egyptian city, the capital of Egypt at the time. This Egypt wasn't as grand as the pharaohs that built the, the pyramids, so it's still powerful, but not quite so powerful. Thebes was located right on the Nile River, and it looked a lot like Nineveh. See, Nineveh was surrounded by water, was very secure, seemed unbeatable. Thebes looked very unbeatable as well. They had uh, great allies, as he mentions here, in Cush in Libya. So Cush is Ethiopia and Sudan to the south. Yeah, I'm looking at your way. And Libya is, uh, Put was the ancient name of Libya to the east. So they seemed to have an endless army. They had everything. They had security. And yet in 663 BC, the Assyrians destroyed it. And didn't just destroy it, but brutalized it. And God says, do you think you guys are any better than them? Do you think you're any better than Thebes and Nineveh? And what he's trying to do there is he is making very clear that they are vulnerable. Despite the fact that you think you're unassailable because you have power, you're actually weak and vulnerable, just as all of you are. I don't care how healthy you and I are. I don't care how much money you have, how much reputation you have. It could disappear like that. And if you don't know that, it's because you're either very young or very naive. Because real people who have lived in this world know we're just hanging, isn't it? Are we just a moment away, a diagnosis away, a car accident away from losing everything? And God uses three powerful metaphors. And he says, listen, you guys are like fig trees. And I remember in Portugal, my grandmother had this orchard, lots of them, citrus trees and everything. And one of them was figs. And we would sometimes go when it was the right time of year, and we put um, towel or blankets around the tree. And then I was a young guy, so I would go up and I'd start shaking the tree. And you shake it and all the figs fall very easily too. And the image is saying, you seem secure, Nineveh, but a little shake will cause you to fall into the mouth of the person waiting underneath to catch the figs. Then he uses even more uncomfortable language for us, but it's not uncomfortable for the Bible, but for us it is, because he says, your troops are like women. Your NIV in some translations will actually get rid of the word woman and put the word weak, because they feel uncomfortable saying women are weak. Listen, I have no problem changing biblical words to allow them to make it clearer, to help us understand ancient ideas. But we don't change a word in the Bible just because it's going to make someone uncomfortable. The reason it says women is simply because culturally that was what the women didn't fight. Women didn't fight. It wasn't their job. It wasn't their place. And the indictment is you're not prepared for battle. You're vulnerable. You're going to be beaten. And the last metaphor was of the doors of the gates of the, of the city having been burned. And so it's wide open. Nothing can prevent the invasion. And when he says this, I mean, he ends with this tragic haunting phrase, especially when you look at the NIV, which I think captures it really nice, well, nicely hauntingly, it says, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. And this is God saying, you're vulnerable. You're exposed. You're guilty, and nothing can prevent what's going to happen. And not only, and see, this is not just what's, what, this is not just the proclamation for Nineveh. It's for all humanity. We are all guilty. We all stand, according to the God of the Bible, exposed. He knows who you are. He knows what you say and what you do. He knows what you think. 
and we all stand exposed, naked before God, and deserving of whatever is going to come. And if this is this idea of guilt looms so hard. Remember, guilt is what we do is wrong. You and I, what we do is so wrong, we don't even want to admit it. We don't even like to admit to ourselves that we've done things wrong at times. And yet, we can't avoid guilt. There's this wonderful article written by a man named David Brooks, uh, not quite a Christian. I think he's now become one because his, he's a New York Times writer, uh, was always a skeptic, but then he met a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller, who just passed away. And it looks like he's now become a, a, a Christian, but I'm not sure. But this article was written years ago, six years ago. And it's, a, it's an article that's uh, titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And he says, you know, we've done something weird in this world, that um, we don't want to admit we're guilty. We don't like to feel we're ashamed and guilty. So what we've done is we've tried to remove religion because God makes us feel guilty, right? Anything perfect makes us feel guilty. So let's get rid of religion so we don't feel this way. He says, but we all know we're guilty and we know it every time you watch one of those commercials with a starving child on it. Because when you watch it, it doesn't matter who you are, you realize we haven't, something's wrong. We haven't been the people we should have been here. And you know how I know you do it? It's because you probably change the channel pretty quick, don't you? And why do you change it? The same reason when I was a kid, and I'll date myself a little, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Who remembers that movie, that video? The zombies on it? That was terrifying to me as a kid. But I didn't want to look like I was a wimp in front of my brother. So what would happen when it came on, I would say, Michael Jackson's terrible, I'm leaving. As if the problem I had was Michael Jackson, not the fact that I was terrified by the thing. I didn't even want to admit to myself that I was afraid. And this is the issue here. Is he, is David Brooks says, you know, we've removed God, but just because we have removed God from our world doesn't mean we've gotten rid of the feelings of guilt. And what has replaced that by removing God has been worse. And here's what he says. Worse than that is this. People have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. The only reliable way to feel morally justified in that culture is to assume the role of a victim. He says, you see, we don't want to feel bad. We're so afraid of admitting that we are standing naked before God, all deserving judgment, that we try to get rid of God. But since that doesn't really work because we still feel that we're guilty and we're not the people we ought to be, we then say, well, if I still feel it, it must be you making me feel that way. It must be the government making me feel that way. It must be the blue side, the red side, the LGBT side. It must be the church. It must be this. Anybody. It might be your biology. You look in the mirror. I'm not the person I feel like I am. Something is to blame, but it's not me. And this is, David Brooks, a non-believer, is saying this in New York City, of all places. And he goes on. It says, sin is a stain, a weight, and a debt. But at least religions offer people a path for, from self-reflection and confession to atonement and absolution. Mainstream culture has no clear path upward from guilt, either for individuals or groups. So you get a buildup of scapegoating, shaming, Manichae and Manichaean condemnation. So we have the culture we exactly, you and I know exists. Turn on your news. Turn on your news. What do we see? It's, they're the bad ones. I'm the bad. They're the bad. It's all, see what we've done? We know somebody is guilty, but we don't have any way of dealing with it anymore. We still feel guilt, but we've removed the, the, the vocabulary for dealing with guilt by moving people away from God, but it hasn't removed the guilt. It simply made us try to find another author for it. And so we're in a much worse position than we ever were, and atheism will say, listen, your violence and the evil in the world, your shame, your guilt, it's all an illusion, 
and it's all meaningless. Your guilt, you only feel guilty because somebody told you there's a right way to live. It's not true. You feel guilty you have being um, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or having sex with them before you're married? That's just a made-up tradition. You have problems with, uh, with your gender identity and all those things? That's just made up. That's all atheism could do. All atheism could do is say what you feel is an error. Because in atheism, you're a biological computer that has overvalued itself. You're just a system. And if there's anything you're feeling, it's not true because none of it exists. So it offers nothing. Secularism offers no answers. Nahum, however, as brutal as this passage is, or, or sounds like, it comes and it tells us exactly what we all know to be true, that the world is not as it should be, and that something ought to be done about it. And Christianity alone offers hope. And now here's where we bring some resolution, and I'm going to use a, a lengthy quote, but it is, regardless, I mean, this is probably the best book ever written on, on trying to understand God in our culture, and it's written by the guy I've just mentioned earlier, Tim Keller. It's called The Reason for God. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called Mere Christianity's Thought. A lot of people have written wonderful books. This book does the finest job of meeting the, where we are in this culture today. And here's how Tim Keller puts the Christian response to all of these issues and how it makes sense, even the evil that God does or seems to do. The death of Jesus was qualitatively different from any other death. The physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual experience of cosmic abandonment. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. Let's see, let's see where this has brought us. If we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So, if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth. We can know that God, that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. And so, Keller is is right. Christian, you cannot resolve. I cannot resolve. And if you claim to be able to, you cannot resolve how it is that a good God can manage to use suffering for his good. I don't understand it all. I don't get it. But what I do know is that when I look at every other religion, they say the suffering is useless. You're never going to know Allah in Islam. You're never going to know his will. Just shut up and take it. You're, you're here. He's up there. And you can never fill this gap. So you'll never know why you're suffering. And it's, it's above your pay grade. Be quiet and suffer. Atheism says there's no suffering. just the way it is. Suck it up. We die, we live. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Buddhism says it's a suffering, it's an illusion. And once you're clever enough, once you've walked and you've, you've become cleverer than your friends, you'll gain enlightenment, and you'll know it's all an illusion. Christianity alone comes and says, no, suffering is real, and it's not meaningless. It is meaningful. 
And because it says it's meaningful, you and I can endure. doesn't mean we're going to be happy in the suffering. Jesus on the cross is not celebrating, saying, praise the Lord, I'm suffering. He's struggling. He's crying out. And the fact that the God of the universe cries out on our behalf means that I can suffer and cry out and not lose dignity. Because if he didn't lose dignity crying out for me, I won't lose dignity crying out. So I don't know the answer. But I do know that he has come and he has bore it for our sake. That he destroys evil when on the he destroys the evil on the cross, he covers our shame by his dying for us, and he pays for our guilt. And we're about to celebrate communion. Now, when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the fact that we drink wine, a new cup of wine, because he drank the cup of wrath. We celebrate that we can have the sweetness of, of mercy because he drank the bitter cup of condemnation and of violence and of, of, dying, of death for us. And the cup, when it's offered to us, is offered saying, if you want to be free from all these things, these problems, if you want an answer, if you want peace amidst life's struggles, there's only one way, the cross. It's the only way. And this is why Christians ought to rejoice and skeptics ought to repent. You can look, you can keep checking the religions of the world, and you're going to find them all falling short. You're always going to fall short until you come to the one who died for you. And it's that wonderful, classic, and terrible line where I'll literally close, that says, until we accept the son that was offered on our behalf, we will continue to offer up our sons and daughters on the altar of our greed and violence. There'll be no hope until you accept Christ. Let's pray. 